0: Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the feed hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The feed hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt,
1: I am John Teeter Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. Kick this off. I'd appreciate it if everybody went in. Five star review and comment. I'd appreciate that. That helps us stay up in the charts. This is now probably one of the top habitat podcasts in the country. And uh, I'm kind of pleased to introduce it that way. I've gotten a lot of feedback from people and I've Probably got 20 emails in the past two days about topics people want to hear. So I appreciate that. There's a lot of things that, you know, I know about. And of course we have guests on here that are experts in certain areas. And today's no different we have a great guest on today and this is an area that i'm not so strong in so i'm kind of happy to kind of just be open about that we got to be vulnerable about our weaknesses and areas that we have to learn and we're going to talk about herbicides today mitchell shirk is another contributor on sportsman's nation or sportsman's empire whatever it's being called today He is uh, Pennsylvania Woodsman's podcast lead, and he is an agronomist, and it's important to have different perspective and ideas. He knows a lot about farming and food plots and herbicides, and I think it's good to get his perspective on
2: this topic. Mitch, you on. How you been, bud? I'm doing well. Thank you for your, uh, your kind words and your introduction. I appreciate you having me. Good, good. So, uh, what's going on in your world right now? Uh, what do you, what do you been up to? This is a busy time of year for us. I, I have about, Oh goodness. I don't know how many number of growers, but I think between myself and then a couple of the people that um, work with us, we we have about seventeen thousand acres of row crops that we look at. So as as corn and beans are going into ground, we we've, we've got some actions we're doing on on wheat her, um, wheat crops. Uh, we're constantly in the field. I'm, I'm constantly riding fields. I'm I'm checking the effectiveness of herbicides. I'm doing overall stand counts for guys. We're just trying to maximize potential in. Uh, Try to keep guys as profitable as possible, especially with the very, uh, I'm just going to say challenging year that we're being faced with in the world of inflated fertilizer and herbicide costs.
1: Yeah, and and really, you know, that's the difficult thing that people struggle with is balancing kind of all these cost inputs and the food plot world that we, we live in, you know, farming for deer or whatever you want to term it is kind of. I've said this on other podcasts, it's a net loss. I mean, we're gaining in the sense that we're uh, contributing to the wildlife benefit. You know, we're benefiting wildlife by providing them food, supplemental food, not always necessarily focused on yield. You are yield focused in the environment you're working on. And I'm not saying people aren't yield focused, but. Generally sure. speaking, if if you have a crop failure, your life isn't over, uh, and financially, you know, hopefully, you know, it's it's not a major detriment to you. But in your world, you know, you need to have success. So, right crop, you know, on that landscape, managing that crop, monocultures. I'm sure there's a lot of that going on. You know, it's it's all about productivity, and that's a, a different, a completely different world.
2: You know. Definitely a completely different world, but there's a lot of parallels when you when you take the food plots. And you said it best, like you, you're in our food plots. I mean, don't get me wrong. If if I have a food plot failure, I'm crying like a little baby. But at the same time, they're uh, they're extremely important to uh, my hunting strategy, as they are for many. And in, in what you guys talk about here on your channel a lot, John. But uh, you know with that, you've got a lot of flexibility. You know, you, you've got the ability to tinker around, learn from your fails, and it's not quite as costly as doing it on a couple thousand acres of corn and soybeans like some of my growers are doing.
1: Yeah. And that's and like you said, it's 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 not as costly, but there's obviously cost input. And every dollar that we're putting into our properties, there needs to be some return on investment. If you're going to expend you know, uh, a significant amount of money, and some of these some of these herbicides we're going to talk about today cost a lot of money, and it's it's being conscious of that and trying to minimize those costs <clears throat> across the landscape, uh, or at least out of your pocket. And you know, I, I I struggle with this, and and this is something that I think a lot of people you know need to start. They're like, well, you know, I, I'm learning all this stuff about crop rotations and getting away from monocultures and You know, when you start putting a smorgasbord of crops together, uh, a broadleaf, a legume, a brassica, you know, you you start putting combination of plants together. It gets very complicated on what specific herbicide you can use. We're going to kind of walk you down the monoculture, complementary cropping, and then kind of more the complex environment where you have multi-crop. And some of the blends could be... 10, 12, 13 species of, you know, again, smorgasbord buffet style food plot. And so I I think, Mitch, you know, we can start with maybe some of the basics. Like right now, you know, I I just drove around tonight uh, with my kids and guys are putting their corn in, you know, they're just kind of finishing up. We've got a rainstorm coming. Everyone's trying to, finish things off. I saw somebody post-emergent spraying. I don't know exactly what they were spraying, but they were spraying something on the field. You know, let's kind of go through the process of like, of a, a, a corn soybean rotation, you know, how you manage that from herbicide. Cause we're going to focus on herbicide and managing, you know, these crops. So you get maximum potential. We said, that's not the focus, but you know, we do want to get some yield out of it and that creates high attractivity for the animals we're trying to kill.
2: Absolutely. So, um, you know, like you said, and you've said in so many cases, the the food plot program that you guys use or come up with—it's you got so much flexibility. And if corn and soybeans is something that fits in, I am definitely somebody who is want wants to try to maximize that yield as much as possible. I think before we get into anything herbicide related, I think you got to keep in mind there's there, there's three different modes of action that you can really utilize. One of them is chemical. Two of them is is mechanical, meaning any kind of form of tillage can sometimes help alleviate weed pressure, and uh, also you know hand pulling. I mean, you said you got kids, so I mean they got to be getting to that age where they can start pulling weeds, right? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, um, and your third would be a biological. And we'll talk about some of that as we go on, because uh, what I'm trying to do with my growers as much as possible is reduce the amount of chemical requirement needed to maximize our yield potential. And I think we get this mindset, uh, this, this flawed mindset that chemicals and herbicides actually work. And, And I say that to ruffle some feathers, but I mean, think about it. If, if herbicides actually fully worked, then you shouldn't have weeds come back, right? And all it is is it's buying you time. It's delaying weed emergence. You're killing weeds and you're buying yourself time to get your crop to the next growth stage to um, allow it to canopy over and, to outcompete everything else. And the most critical time that we have to manage is when crops are young, when they first go into ground up until their, their their first few stages. I mean, for, for corn, um, when you see corn spiking out of the ground, you're talking um, every leaf is a growth stage. So V1, V2, V3, V4 up to V5. V5, it's about knee high on a uh, you know, six foot, Six foot tall individual, the world, of the plant is going to come up to my knee. The, those stages right there are one of the most critical stages, and it's no different for beans, uh, soybeans, and I I always want to start out by determining, look, is this going to be a solid corn and soybean food plot, or are we going to try to incorporate winter annuals into this mix somehow? Because that's going to be a key thing to say, are we going to put residual herbicides into this mixture, or are we just going to use something that is systemic or contact and is not going to have any uh, lingering half-life in the soil that's going to impede something from growing further?
1: So that's a good point, Mitch, that you're bringing up. Some of these herbicides last for some period of time, whether it's a post-emergent or, you know, a pre-emergent, pre-emergent being, you know, inceptually applied before the crop is planted or, you know, just just before, even sometimes at the time the crop is planted and then, then post-herbicide. They will have residual effects, and those residual effects will ultimately impact the next stage of crop. and And some of those durations are anywhere between six, seven months. I've seen in certain herbicides. So you know that's a good good thing to think about. And in this situation, from a corn standpoint, you know, in that tonight, you know, looking at the corn planting, a lot of people in our area use atrazine. Atrazine is a uh, pre; uh, they they apply it sometime before planting the crop. That lasts. that residual lasts for a significant amount of time, and that will limit your next crop that you can a- a- apply in that area. What would be some of the crops in an atrazine situation that you may have difficulty getting to be planted you,
2: if you're putting a cover crop on? Any Anything come to mind at all? absolutely so a lot of your um your legumes you got to be concerned about so to give you an example um let's say you've got a corn crop going in this year but you're thinking i want to put that into alfalfa or clover next year um the plant back on clover and and you got to forgive me i'm going by my memory and 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 sometimes i've learned it doesn't serve me well but i'm almost positive that um, when you apply atrazine, you have an 18 month plant back for alfalfa and some of your other legumes and, and other, uh, I'll just say more sensitive crops that you'll have in uh, in food plots, they will, uh, they'll be just as long. They'll be 12 months to um, and 18 months. Now, I say that that is based on, um, that, that is based on a crop. Um, to be harvested and, and, and taken. Like if we have that crop go in before that 18 months, that's not to say that it's not going to grow. It's just going to be a stunted crop. If you, if you plant soybeans the following year, there's a 12 month plant back for soybeans, but let's say you would apply atrazine later into the season. You know, right now is. uh, we're into the tail end of May into the beginning of June now a lot of growers what they're doing is they're they're using atrazine as a foundational pre emerge herbicide and what we'll do often there, there's a maximum allowable um, amount of two pounds in an, in a calendar year, and what I try to do is I try to spread my risk out in weeds germinating throughout the growth stage of corn. So we might do at a, a burn down, which uh, is exactly that's before the corn is coming up. All the weeds that you see in the field, we're going to do a burn down, which might have up and we might have a pint of atrazine. And then when we do a post-emerge herbicide application, as you start to uh, spread out your risk in your residuals, we'll do another application that might have a one pint. Uh, to give you an idea how much that is, that is one, know, you know, two pints is a quart, but that's one pound and you're up to two allowable pounds. I'm trying to reduce the amount of need by spreading out our risk as much as possible.
1: Interesting strategy and, and uh, not something that I think most people have awareness of. So let's, um, let's take it one step further. So, you know, I know that there's various, you know, pre-emergence and, and some to come to mind for me, for whatever reason is prowl. I don't know why that comes Mm -hmm. into my head. Uh, They use that on corn, soybeans, uh, uh, cow peas, uh, those, those type of variant plants, those combinations I've seen that work well. Yeah that's a pre-emergent uh atrazine we just brought up I think uh, there's another one called um, oh Mitch my mind's uh maybe uh magnum no um
2: uh, maybe dual to magnum, dual,
1: dual tube magnum, dual tube yeah. magnum. Yeah. Another corn, soybean combination pre-emergent. So, you know, and, and I I forget quantities and pints, et cetera. Uh, but, but those are things you can research, obviously. Sure. Some of these are controlled though. I, you know, I sh- should mention that if you don't have, you know, license to spray certain herbicides, y- you can't, um, you have to get somebody who's licensed to do that. Atrazine's a
2: pretty good example. But yeah, that's, that's the main one that everybody comes up with, you know, that you're supposed to have a um, herbicide applicator's license to do that. But we make a lot of herbicide recommendations for growers. You know, we have some small operations that, you know, won't uh, necessarily have that. So we'll come up with something that goes uh, around that. You know, you brought up Prowl, that uh, active ingredient is pendimethalin real, uh, real common herbicide to use. But when when I'm coming up with herbicide programs for corn or soybeans or anything like that, you first got to ask yourself, what is your problem weed? You know, if if we we can come up with a list of herbicides in a herbicide classification book that has, you know, 27 different modes of action or whatever. And if you don't know what we're trying to kill, then you're going to be Wasting your money, and you might be applying more chemical to the soil than you really need to apply. Well, let's now, let's go ahead.
1: Let's uh, let's kind of get into that for a second because I think it's plant identification is kind of next. Like, what are your typical on your landscape? Not yours specifically, but in general, you know, the listenership identify the plants whether it's pigweed or some type of weed that's unwanted that's going to cross compete or compete with the plant that you're trying to develop. And I think that's probably the start of this equation. Um, One of the reference books that I have sitting, I don't have it on my desk here, but I got it on my wall, was there's a a, a Craig Harper book that came out, Mm -hmm. I think, three or four years ago. I I don't know if you've ever read it. It's it's kind of like a field manual, and it's about wildlife food plots, and it's Mm -hmm. got a that, that guy is incredibly intelligent. The <laughs> amount of research he has done on herbicides is is beyond, like, I know he's done that for his entire career since the 80s, but my goodness, the information that's in that book, I use that reference all the time. Somebody asked me questions because I couldn't remember half and I'm sure he can't either, but it's written down in his book, and, uh, and, and the reason I get off topic like that is a lot of people are used to just applying, applying glyphosate right? It pretty mm-hmm. It's pretty it's, it's, standard. It's a non-select, meaning it's not, it applies to a lot of different plants and it does well. And, and typically when I'm, I'm rolling down the woods, killing uh, plants that, that, that I don't like, usually glyphosate's in, in my pack. It may have a combination of, of a few different herbicides, but it's in my it's in my sprayer. And so, you know, <coughs> that generic select herbicide, you know, would be in an application, especially when you have round-up ready corn or soybeans, a really good option for a lot of people. But it doesn't do well in on certain in certain types of weeds. So know your weeds and and know the related herbicide that will will kill that without killing obviously the plant you're trying to establish for that matter. So sorry I cut you off, but just you know, yeah, a basic no but, problem. But it's a fundamental, right? So. Sorry, keep going with what you were you were rolling on. You were you're were going
2: in in a direction. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So um One of the reasons we're talking about identifying weeds is so important. Roundup Ready was a great technology that came out, but it it caused us problems. It caused herbicide resistance. And there are weeds out there. And and in my area, I'm running into more and more certain uh, weeds that are pretty common across the landscape that are resistant to glyphosate. And it's just because of that, you know, generational buildup of applying the the herbicide improperly, too much reliance on it year after year, and you start to get we start to get resistance. Some of those weeds that you might be seeing Roundup resistance to. Mares' tail or horseweed, that's a real common one that is glyphosate resistant in our area. And I, I'm down here in southeast Pennsylvania, but I mean, that's something that's pretty well spread across the you know, eastern half of the, the Mississippi River um, location. But another common uh, summer annual weed is. Palmer, amaranth, or water hemp. Those are pretty noxious glyphosate resistant weeds. You know, there's common ragweed and giant ragweed have some resistance. There's a lot of other resistance. So, when I'm coming up with a herbicide program up front, if I want to have a clean field, I'm probably going to have glyphosate in as a burn down. And there's a good chance I'm going to have something in like 24D, which is going to be a broad spectrum broadleaf systemic herbicide. And that does a really good job of helping with any broadleaf weeds, such as horseweed, that might be out there and wouldn't die from that flat glyphosate application.
1: Yeah, that's a good that's a good combination. And that's that's usually what's in my backpack when I'm when I'm uh, sneaking through the woods killing the unwanted unwanted plants, not necessarily my food plot. All right, so We've got a lot of these plants, and, we, we again, we, we identified a book to go look at. Uh, I just pulled it up while you were talking, and I was, you know, just taking a look at some of the recommendations that Harper had, mm-hmm. and it's pretty interesting. So we talked about uh, pigweed, for example, example here. Uh, Liberty 280SL is an example, uh, Maristel that kills both of those. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty successful at doing that atrazine is another one to consider for, for the pigweed. Uh, and I know that a lot of people uh, are fighting with, with that. So, you know, it's got a list of, of uh, Harmony. I've used Harmony. I have used Dual Magnum before. Prowl I've used. I'm just kind of mm-hmm. looking at the 2,4-D-B, Butatrac. Again, yep. uh, that's a very, we'll talk about that at, uh, in a little bit when we talk about clovers, etc. cetera. Uh, but 2,4-D and, and glyphosate tends to be the one that I use the most. It's most readily available, and it's not restricted. Of course, when you're applying that, you know, 2,4-D does have some residual, too, and I, I forget what the time period on that is, but there
2: there are some limitations yeah. when, when you're using that. So we're kind of going I'm kind of going around, around about and talking very general, so I'll get a little bit more specific in some of the herbicide programs that I'm seeing being very effectual. If you're just looking for a straight corn food plot and you're not planning on doing anything else and you want to stack your plants, the uh, the first thing I want to say, we brought up Roundup and 2,4D, and you you brought up there's a plant back with 2,4D. Um, that that's a that's a really important thing to note. On the label, there's a, a seven day plant back when you apply higher than one pint per acre of 2,4D. Um, I'll tell you from my personal experience that if you apply 12 to 16 ounces of 2,4D in your burn down on a corn crop. 99 times out of 100, you can plant your corn the same day and you won't have a problem, especially in a food plot sense. I've never had that injury on seed. Now, if we've got, um, we, we're talking about planting the same day and spraying the same day. A lot of people want to do a burn down and uh, wait a week or two. And I think that is one of the biggest mistakes that you can make as somebody who is doing a food plot. The longer that you wait to plant, the, the, the shorter the amount of time you have for that crop to get out of the ground and establish and deal with weeds. So what I'm trying to do with most of my growers is follow the planter with the herbicide. And for corn, we talked about atrazine. I think one thing that we can't um, we can't miss in uh, corn herbicides and bean herbicides is what I would call a group fifteen herbicide, and that would be something like you mentioned earlier, dual. And when you have that, you've got three or four different modes of action going onto that field. And if you put that right as close to planting as possible, it's going to extend the amount of time you have to do a post-emerge herbicide for any lingering weeds that would come up. For instance, you start to get some summer annuals that slowly peek in on field corners. Maybe you got some sections where deer are starting to hammer it and you're getting a little bit more sunlight in your food plot and you're starting to get some weeds come back and you'll have to do a post-emerge application of Hopefully round up ready corn and it's just simple to, to clean up in that sense and then allow your corn to canopy and go ahead.
1: Yeah, that's a that's kind of a good great great example there. And I like the I like the idea of, of not waiting. I think a lot of people wait for a complete down, and they say, okay, you know, they get the visual appeal of that. The other thing is as a plant degrades and it degrades, it, it decays essentially. At the rate it decays, when you're going to till in green manure so to speak you get the Mm -hmm. ultimate benefit at a much quicker rate and that decomposition happens within the soil not on top of the soil that's a really critical thing to organic material feeding the microbes uh, that microbe activity will increase exponentially at that point in time some will be affected by the herbicide. There's no doubt about that, but getting the crops in the ground and getting rid of the plants that are on the surface can be kind of, kind of a good action and, and a double benefit for that matter. So I think a great point that you made there. All right, let's let's uh, let's take it to another level. So let's think of a, maybe a combination of plants. We've, we've kind of talked about beans and, and corn. Those are the most common. A lot of times, you know, they're... They're GMO, uh, so you can apply glyphosate. We gave some other examples of other herbicides you can use. Let's think of another maybe crop combination, clover chicory. Have you had a lot of people using clover chicory food plots? I've got one in my backyard. It's kind of one of my test plots. I've got all actually a whole host of different weeds in there that I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to do with at this point. What are some of the post and pre-emergence you might use in that situation or maybe it's just pre-emergence you want to use. And, and I, I could think of one off the bat, but I'm interested to hear what you think.
2: That's a great question. Um, generally speaking, most of the time we are in, in, this, in this, I guess you'd say, line of work, we're not doing a lot of pre-emerge herbicides for clover, chicory, alfalfa. Most of the time we're trying to prepare the seed bed by having a crop rotation and and, you know, managing residue on the top, um, a lot of the time we're doing no-till. We're doing things that are hopefully minimizing the amount of weed pressure we have. And I think the pl- the timing of the planting of that is so, so critical. Um, there, there's, there's one very well-known um, deer manager that I can think of that preaches that you should never, ever plant clover in the springtime. And I, I, I'm just blown away by that. And to me, it's absolute blasphemy because um, that is one of the most opportune times. But the thing is, right now, as we're talking here, John, we're in the end of May, beginning of June. If you're thinking about planting clover, chicory, alfalfa now. Uh, In in my neck of the woods and probably most of the way up through into northern Pennsylvania, southern New York, you're probably missing that opportunity because the soil temperature has warmed up to allow summer annuals through. And those summer annuals are rapid. It's just what it is. It's an annual plant. They take off very, very quickly. And if they get ahead of your perennial plants, your perennial clovers, chicories, things like that, they will quickly outcompete. So, the biggest thing, in my opinion, you can do for weed control in your clover or chicory plot is a plant it early. And I say early, down here in Southeast PA. The last week of March is actually a fantastic time to start your planting at. Put that into the first, second week of April, and as you get up in latitude, you can start to see that um, get a little bit later and later here on out. But um, that is one of the best things you can do to get started. But as far as getting it established, once you've got something planted and established, uh, there's a herbicide out that is called Raptor. It is a um, uh, salt of amazomox, and that is a labeled herbicide that you can apply over the top of clover and chicory, and you won't harm either of them. It's a fantastic um, broadleaf weed killer. Um, it does have activity on some grasses, and the, the thing you got to just keep in mind is as you you're starting to get that clover emerged starting to get it up you have to watch and it has three trifoliate leaves so you count off the main stem you count three main leaves it's labeled you can apply herbicide to it and an early application of that herbicide in a a well-established seeding rate of clover and chicory that one application 99 times out of 100, I never had a problem if it was all timed right, because that slow establishing perennial, it's established in that first month or two, and it will start to quickly outcompete the summer annuals that are coming a month ahead of when you planted them.
1: Yeah, so let me ask you another question, and this is the problem that plagues a lot of people is... Raptor is really expensive. Oh, certainly. You you know that. And, and that's a, that's a limitation. And, uh, you know, either you have a group buy because you don't need it. You don't need a ton of it on a per acre basis. You know, are there any alternatives that, that are less expensive, um, that, that might, might help somebody out that doesn't have the, uh, the pocketbook of you know, I don't even know I don't even know what a gallon of it's going for, but I know it's not
2: cheap. Oh, I'll tell you what a gallon of it's going for. It's a little bit more than you want to go for. But yeah, that is a major problem with Raptor. I bring it up as a great chemical, but it is one of those things that inhibit you. And I talked about this on an episode earlier this spring, talking about that. I look at it as a great opportunity to network with people. If you're already networking with guys or you're you're trying to do stuff, maybe you're lucky and you have a co-op and, and a whole bunch of you have clients. Clover in chicory plots, that's a great opportunity. Um, maybe you've got farmers in the neighborhood that have alfalfa. Uh, that'd be a great opportunity to introduce yourself, talk to them, and and see if they're using Raptor. And you might be able to um, buy some off of a farmer and, and help him out and you, and he help you out in that sense. But, um, you know, if that is not an option and you're not going to buy a gallon, which a gallon, I believe right now is somewhere in the ballpark of four to $450, which it's very salty. Um, but at at a, a use rate of four to six ounces per acre, you can cover a pretty good amount of acres with that. And, uh, with, with most guys not having, High acreage in, a, in alfalfa, clover, or chicory in food plots, um, it, it'll last you longer than uh, than its shelf life. So you get really, really tricky when you're trying to combine chicory and clover with a lot of the other herbicides that are out there on the market. Um, the uh, th- there's a there's a sister to um, to Raptor. It's called Pursuit, and that might be. Uh, well-known to some guys as Slay from Whitetail Institute. Uh, it's the same herbicide. The problem is that's going to kill your chicory. The, the only other herbicide that really stands out that we would use in this situation is uh, Butyrex, 2,4-DB. And again, that is not labeled on chicory. I have seen chicory live through it. Um, Believe it or not. But it's one of those things that you you don't have a ton of options. And if if there's an option out there, I'm unaware of it uh, being something that's readily accessible to uh, guys like you and me who are trying to plant food plots.
1: Yeah, I, I just I just remember reading about an imox herbicide on a forum, and I have not used that. I have used two DB, by the way, and I have seen mm-hmm. chicory survive in those situations. Um, and it was established chicory; it wasn't a first year chicory. So, just I don't know. Keep that in mind. Maybe that's mm-hmm. you know completely uh, uh, you know just just an example that I had going on. All right, let's um let's get off this topic because um, a lot of people have pure chicory plots or pure clover plots and there's specific Mm -hmm. herbicides you can apply in those, those situations. We kind of alluded to those. Let's kind of go into maybe more complex blend. And, and this is, this is where I'm at today and this is my strategy. So I'm, I'm going to be selfish here and talk about what I'm doing. Uh, I've been Okay. So I've been, I've been doing my system for seven, eight years now. I think I'm on year seven or eight. I can't remember. Um, It's a multi-species blend. And I typically, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, I typically have a high grass component in there, uh, whether it's wheat, triticale, et cetera. uh, And it allows me to crimp and create weed mats Mm -hmm. necessarily. I've got a big crimper on my tractor. I broadcast all my seed. I'm thinking about in those situations, the moisture content, it's all timing related. But when I'm in that mode of putting in a a 10, 12, 13, 14 species blend, and I'm doing each seed individually when I do that, I am not as worried about herbicide. So my herbicide knowledge has kind of started to dwindle because I spot treat my food plots. And, mm-hmm. and here's what I do. So let's say I'm going into the springtime and, and uh, you know, I've got right now, I've got a triticale on most of my uh, either clover plots and in the clover plots, I'm actually probably going to let that triticale just seed out. Um, but in the areas where I have these annual crops and I'm, I'm going to put in a 60, 70, 80, 90 day blend crop, you know, sunflower could be in there. You know, I'm not going to, I'm going to broadcast at a much higher rate, 30, 40% higher I'm going to have a, a large percentage of oats or, you know, grass component in there. And when I put that seed down, I'm actually spot treating or mowing. So I will go with a backpack. This is why I like small food plots. And I will start picking like if I got flea I want to take out or if I got, you know, some type of unwanted plant, uh, let's say, uh, Uh, I got bluegrass coming up right now. Uh, I may spot spray that. And when I spot spray that location, I have seed on me and I throw a bunch of seed in that location. It's simply grass. I'll throw oats down. I'll kill that plant and I'll throw oats down. And again, I'm out competing it, you know, and I'm fighting grasses with grasses, broadleaves with broadleaves. It's a strategy I've been doing for a long time and it works really, really well. And it makes me have to learn plants. And I don't know every single plant Uh, Sometimes I use an app. Uh, Sometimes I got to bring the, and I Mm -hmm. call one of my botanist buddies and say, Do you know what this is? Because I don't. And then in that process, I'm eliminating things individually and I'm replacing it by just broadcasting. And of course, there's a timing thing to all this. You've got to know, you know, when a plant's reaching a certain stage where it will crimp well. Um, I've crimped almost every species, okra, hemp, Um, And I can do it really well. The the stemmier stuff, like sorghums, those don't work well. Um, Again, you're going to have a large percentage of grass. And again, that that allows you to kind of create this weed mat. And I'm doing, I I don't have a a no-till drill. I'm just broadcasting by hand because in this situation that I'm explaining... That's how seed was naturally generating itself on the ground. Um, Certain, obviously, plants don't do well. Corn is a good example. Soybeans is a good example. But radishes do really well in those situations. Um, You have to think about carbon and nitrogen ratios and sustainability. And there's a lot that goes in those equations. But just a simple example. I went on and on here. But spot spraying plants is the best way to eliminate large volumes of herbicide. And get your point across. You just got to buy extra seed to combat those plants that you do not want residing. And it takes a little extra time. And that's okay because I'm going to miss stuff and I'm okay with missing stuff. If I miss some fleabane, I'm not that concerned about it because deer may consume it at a certain stage of its life. And it's okay that it's it's on the landscape. Lamb's quarter is another example. They eat at a certain stage and they don't at other stages. Am I really worried about dealing with that at that point in time? Probably not. Right. I may just mow it. So uh, my rant's over. But there's options for you when you have a multi-species blend that you can't use a, spe- excuse me, a specific herbicide that may kill you know, a broadleaf that you planted when you, you want to sustain or you know, maintain that broadleaf in, in that example.
2: Mitch, any thoughts there? <laughs> yeah. I mean you you brought up a lot of good things. I mean you're going through and I'm I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm shaking my head. And I'm going, Yep, that makes it, yep. Uh huh. That's exact yep, you you that's was one of the things I was gonna say. Um you, you know, you, you brought up a name earlier in our conversation, uh Dr. Craig Harper. I mean, that is a, a wealth of knowledge. That book you brought up. I have that book. It's a great reference. Um but you know he he talks about old field conversion i'm going to make a parallel here he talks about con- converting a field that was once in an agriculture and converting it to something wildlife and one of the things he talks about doing is exactly that spot spraying driving on a tractor or an atv with a with a, a herbicide gun hooked up to the tank and identifying those plants and spraying and year 1 man there was a lot of stuff i was spraying a lot of noxious stuff year 2 they were still pretty much there year 3 man, this is looking a little bit better and better and better. I'm starting to use less and less herbicide. And you'll get to the point where you go, hmm, I don't have that much to spray anymore. And you can, you can have that same thing happen in your food plots. And let, let's, let's kind of revert back to the first thing I said when we were talking about this. There's chemical control in food plots, but there's also mechanical and biological I'm not as big of a fan of the mechanical sense by means, just because I, I'm very, very pro no-till and soil health. Not that not that tilling is necessarily a bad thing. It's a it's a it's a tool. It's something that can be used as necessary. But um, we've also I, I think in, as food plotters, we've got this mindset of you've you've got to go out on your tractor and till the soil until you see nothing but brown. And it, it's in most cases, it's not the most necessary thing. And w- when we were getting to that biological control and what you're doing with, with crimping and having a fairly um... – Moderate to moderately aggressive carbon to nitrogen ratio. You've got higher on grasses, and what that's going to do is when, when you're crimping them, you, your optimum timing for crimping those is going to be at anthesis, or when those plants are flowering and they're trying to reproduce and create seed. That is when they are easiest to crimp, and that is also when you you take a very lush green plant that's high in nitrogen. And when it gets to that stage, you start to see the carbon ratio jack up in those plants. And that makes it viable on the soil surface way, way longer. So when you're doing that, the timing and the crimping that is going on there, that is keeping a mulch layer over the top. That is a fantastic biological approach to minimizing seeds. Um, Annual weeds like pigweeds and ragweeds and lambs quarter and and, you know, yada, yada, yada. They are small seeds with not a lot of energy. If they've got bare dirt and they get sunshine, they're going to grow. But if you outcompete them or choke them out with a, a fairly thick mat of rye or, or something like that, th- they're going to either not germinate at all or they're going to germinate and get quickly competed by the things that you planted that are in a very uh, a much better off situation, so to speak. Um, so, you know, that's important. Um, I'd be curious and I, I wouldn't mind if you'd kind of chat about this with you. I find that when you are taking your fall food plot, that's fine winter annuals and winter cereals, and you are doing um, no till or minimum till or something like that with minimum equipment, maybe you've got a tractor, a cold packer, um, you don't have a, a drill, you know, any fancy equipment that I'm you know, fortunate enough to be having around with me. You, you really have to watch your um, amount of Excuse me, you really have to watch the amount of uh, soil coverage you get or the the thickness of that planting rate because if you get it too thick and you're broadcasting seeds on top and you you lay that mulch over top, you can actually have too much mulch over the top and finding that um, ratio of soil coverage from those plants over those new seeds that you're planting this spring, that can be somewhat of a learning curve and I think that's the biggest feat of everybody's understanding residue and how to manage residue with the no-till. But um, it, it is a really, really cool transition. And in the long run, the sustainability of soil and, and having your food plots go in and, and uh, you know, seeing the whole, uh, the big picture, I say, so to speak, um, it's really the best situation, best bang for your buck and in, in nutrient cycling, I should say.
1: Yeah. So one thing I, I will recommend, and this is, this is to your point right there at the end, and, and I went through this learning cycle where I had, you know, I let buckwheat get six or seven foot tall before I crimped it. Um, I, I, I I did all these learning mistakes to, to figure out what what the instance of uh, screw-up was. And, you know, if you have winter rye, which I've started to get away from winter rye or lower the capacity of it in mm-hmm. my winter food plots, because, again, when it comes back on, I can kind of gauge the volume. And if the volume is too great, uh, that really inhibits your next crop that's going to come into that food plot so you know one of the strategies you could be is you loo- use something with with a, a little bit less biomass or it's a little bit more uh capable uh in the sense that it, it finds its place but it, it's it's not too voluminous uh triticale and winter winter wheat are probably the best next option uh, mm-hmm. triticale being a, a blend of, of rye and wheat uh, i i've been using triticale the the other options when you go into the spring And let's just say you had a higher uh, brassica uh, plant, volume of brassica. And I've reduced my uh, brassica planting just because the volume is space that they take up from their leaf literature there. Um, What I've done is I've reduced that, you know, where I used to apply three pounds, I'm down to maybe a pound. And making sure that I definitely have, you know, multiple grasses around that and it'll consume that space so I won't be dealing with weeds I deal with a ton of smart weed around here for some strange reason. It's all mm. over the place. And then what I'm doing is I'm, in the springtime, if there are holes and I see large holes because of, you know, a plant that, that had a lot of nitrogen component that degraded over the winter months, I will, in April, I will take spring triticale and I will throw it out all over the place and fill those gaps where I think there's going to be gaps and mm. it's, it's kind of a balancing act and it's a little bit of an artesian or artistic work where I'm out there. And I'm just feeling how much seed I'm putting on the ground. I'm kind of being one with nature when I'm making these decisions and just, you know, just throwing out seed the way I see it I'm, I'm broadcasting it by hand. Um, and and I don't have perfect food plots. You know, I, I got that picture of that big buck in my backyard that I, well, I didn't kill it in my backyard, but I took those nice pictures and I was like, oh my God, your food plots are awesome. That was all by hand. But you know, mm-hmm. the struggle I had was I had a huge brassica component of that and I'm struggling this year to grow clover in certain spots. So what did I do? I went in and I broadcasted in April, a bunch of different triticale uh triticale in that area taking up that space and also you know seeding you know clover to kind of fill the gap and clover that clover that was that was frost seeded so to speak is just starting to emerge right now um and 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 i don't i want to say it's just starting but it's been emerging over the past two and a half weeks and it's starting to fill that void and uh i've got yellow rocket in there i'm gonna mow it I'm not really concerned right now with yellow rocket and I can't go in there and spray anything because I will kill the clover. Uh, So I'm going to go in there and just, I'm going to mow it tomorrow. So, you know, mechanically you can get rid of things. You don't have to have these perfect food plots and just... Don't necessarily get caught up in, you know, the magazine. And I brought up the example earlier with me and that buck in the backyard, the magazine style. I've had so much more success with these nasty, tall food plots that just look like hell, you know, comparatively. And and the deer are highly attractive because in some cases, like I'm throwing sorghum in areas I wouldn't to create screening, but I'm also throwing in the food plot. It just gives an element to cover and um, I'm not doing that in large volumes because it's not really a crimpable plant. But, you know, mm-hmm. these are the things I'm starting to do in my food plots and just enjoying the process of planning and not worrying about some of the small things uh, that, that you may want to worry about when, when you're trying to have that perfect clover plotter, perfect chicory plotter. You know, corn doesn't do well when it starts competing with grasses, other grasses. So, you know, you've got to kind of understand the plant and what it needs to, to kind of outcompete adjacent plants and go back to the spot spraying process. That is the most simple advantageous route to go. And um, it's usually pretty simple to kind of amend those with just a large volume of seed.
2: So. Without a doubt. And th- th- when it comes to the herbicides and food plotting, I mean, you, I think about the th- list of things that is going through my mind as we're talking about this, John. And and you could come up with so many different episodes that it would probably make most deer hunters and food plotters get bored because I know you and I kind of, you know, geek out a little bit of this stuff and what we enjoy. We enjoy that part of the landscape. But I, I say it as you know, people who listen to this, it's slightly intimidating the the learning curve that you can have with this. But it, it's um, it's something that you continually refine and and manage over time. And again, I. I I I hear you on the the, making it absolutely perfect. Um, So many people strive for that perfection. And I want to have as much uh, quality food and biomass going into the fall as I possibly can. But, you know, here we are in uh, end of May, beginning of June. And if I have some weeds in my food plots right now, it's really not the end of the world. Because if the deer are utilizing them, it's probably going to be just fine.
1: Yeah, I I think keep, keep it simple. My methodology, and maybe I made it sound more complicated. It's not. It is so simple, and it. I even I've even learned over the past couple of years. I actually have perennials in my annual crops. I, I was interesting. On a, I was on a podcast uh, a few years ago, and I I was opposing a point of view. And the more I've thought about it, just to maintain like a, a legume comp, you know component of that food plot. It's it's a good strategy to have. It's always um, a resident, you know, available food source. And when I'm designing a lot of these food plot regimes for my clients, I do have perennial plots adjacent to annual plots. And I, I go through a combination of rotation. My clients that have, you know, had me on their, you know, their properties recognize these rotations and cycles. And I, I go through two or three year cycles. I mean, you saw, I think you saw what I posted on Instagram, my, mm-hmm. my, uh, my soil tests that I did. I mean, you know, those, those areas had not been tilled. I put zero fertilizer. I don't use any fertilizer in my food plots. Um, I, I do have uh, soil amendments that I'm using now that are uh, a little bit sensitive to, to what I'm, I'm, I'm going to next. But you know, the, the goal out of this thing is to not till, to do throw and grow, to apply uh, soil amendments that last me 10 to 15 years. They're they're not very water-soluble. They they reside in the soil and not really having to do much, but just kind of get out there and just timing. It's all about timing and think about the next plant. Before uh, other people did this routine, I was doing this, and I don't want to say I was doing it well because I wasn't. I was learning about this, and all I learned was it's a lot simpler than we make it. Having sure. a, a combination of a grass that you can literally, you could take a board and a stick and and crimp it. That's what I used to do in my garden. I used to put winter rye in. I just did this with my mother-in-laws and I, I crimp it. You know, I crimp it and then she sticks her plant right through that. It's the same principle. I'm creating, you know, something to eliminate and shade out other plants and I'm allowing the plants that I want to germinate on the top of the soil. There's a lot of moisture in that regime and more than likely they'll do really well, assuming I have the right volume. And the volume thing is is the trickery in this. And you've got to play with those combinations. And um, I would say it's it's a bit of an art artist type mentality. But you'll you'll get the process once once you get it down, and and then you'll get into the spot spray routine like like I'm doing. Or you may have a no-till uh, situation, and it's a heck of a lot easier. So you can be more regulating, you know, your inputs, mm-hmm. uh, from, from a seed standpoint, instead of just, uh, you know, uh, applying a, a percentage over what you'd normally plant. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm at today with things. All right. Let's, uh, let's round it out. Anything that's on your mind, uh, you know, it's, it's just sitting with you of, you know, something to do. We're trying to keep it simple. A lot of these combinations, we, we had a book recommendation, you've got people you know you could reach out to to mitch you're you're available to help help obviously sure. people, uh, so am I, and it, you know you can take combinations of these 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 plants and figure out you know what will work and maybe you have a combination of a broadleaf. Uh, so you can manage just broadleaf. or maybe it's just legumes you want to keep it simple, but you have a multitude of of different broadleafs uh, that you that you're applying and again, think of uh, adding some perennials in there, not just annuals. Um, we didn't give all the examples, but you know you can start to research those those things, and and think about the rotation of crops and being variable in that, and uh, not applying herbicide at a, a large rate over time. The plant resistance that that we we're talking about earlier with mare's tail, etc. Think about you know those and, and read your labels. Don't apply too much herbicide. You know be conscious of that. You know take. Take uh, take that to a level of importance because you're poisoning the soil, so to speak. Those are those are toxic in some capacity. Mm-hmm. So don't abuse that privilege. So that that's that's my rant.
2: I'm done. What what do you, what do you want to say, Mitch? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So a couple things stand out. Mine. I, I want to revert back a little bit. We we talked a bunch about corn herbicides and didn't talk too much about soybeans. And if you have a monoculture of soybean. Um, as as a food plot that you're planting, and you are facing um, mare's tail, horseweed. That's a it's a pretty common problem. That's a biennial. Some of it germinates in the fall. Some of it germinates in the spring. Regardless, if you don't kill that and your beans come up, unless you've got some special technology that you can apply a herbicide over the top, other than Roundup, that will will terminate mare's tail. Um, you, you're you're up, you know what, creek without a paddle. So one of the things that I've found has been very effective in soybeans is do a, a, a seven-day pre-plant burn-down slash pre-emerge herbicide that has um, a pint per acre of 2,4-D with glyphosate and then use a herbicide called metribuzin. Metribuzin does not have a very long half-life, and it's actually, I've already interceded fall blends into those beans that had metribuzin on in the spring and had no problem, but it does a very good job of preventing more mare's tail from coming within those first 30 days of soybeans. So that's something I think is pretty, pretty good to keep in mind because soybean plots are going in now. They're a uh, really popular food plot. Um, and the, the last thing that I'd like to say, you know, we talked about a bunch of stuff from, from chemical to biological and mechanical and on the chemical side of things, Don't treat a lot of the herbicides that we are talking the way you would treat glyphosate. And what I mean by that is so many of us have been used to spraying glyphosate on weeds that are chest high, um, you know, putting it in a backpack sprayer, spraying it on weeds in your garden. You, you see it, it doesn't matter what it is or the height that it is. almost nine times out of 10, your weeds are going to die and you're going to have a nice clean field. And if you treat herbicides, um, some of these other modes of action, you treat those herbicides in that way, you might have a a failure. Uh, the perfect example I'm going to give is your clover, your chicory plots. I've had so many people over the years, um, maybe they're spraying clethodim, which is a grass herbicide. They're just trying to kill grass. And I've made that recommendation say, Hey, spray this and this will kill your, your, your grasses. And I, I had this happen where somebody called me a few weeks later and they're like, well, that didn't work. I don't know why you gave me that recommendation. I said, well, how about I come out and look at it? And the grasses were almost up to my waist and you want to be prioritizing your herbicide applications when weeds are small. All herbicide labels are going to say spray early and kill them at a young stage. Weeds that are two inches tall are way easier to kill than weeds that are two feet tall. And your window should always be looking to do two to six inch weeds. And that's part of what I'm doing right now is corn and soybeans are coming out of the ground down here in Southeast Pennsylvania. And I'm riding my four wheel or I'm walking these fields all over the place, trying to make sure that we don't have any major weed escapes and, and time all of my growers to hit those weeds at the right time when they're two to four in two to four two to six inches tall, and then after that herbicide application comes, your corn and your soybeans can canopy over. Um, and beyond that, it's a constant tinkering. Um, John said it. You're more than welcome. A lot of the the stuff we're talking about we're we're talking about in a general sense, and it's a good way to get your foot through the door. But if you've got specific problems, John's very receptive. I'm also receptive. You're, you're more than welcome to ask me questions about field stuff, but, um, you know, all of your listeners, John, I, I can say from a, you know, definitely from, from a whitetail landscape and hunting strategy standpoint, I know they're in good hands, but you're in real good hands here in, the, in these food plot conversations because I'll be, I'll be, I want to compliment you and um, your buddy Todd that you've had on a couple of times. Um, you, you guys have talked about some farming and food plot practices and techniques that if you guys ever need a different job, I think you guys would make great field agronomists because you're you're, you're talking about a lot of stuff that's like music to my ears. Like, uh, you know, you guys have had enough experience in food plots and, um, you know, all your listeners, be, be wary of where you hear information, but I can tell you from from John and this crew um, that you, a lot of, you're in good hands as far as getting good quality food plot information.
1: Awesome, man. Mitch, Mitch thanks, man. I appreciate you being there. And I, I did not pay you to say that, so thank you. Um, (laughs) so uh just we'll end it here um make sure you tune in to mitch's podcast okay he's got a great podcast i listened to one recently on old field management great podcast great information great strategy um we'll have him on again and we'll probably talk more agronomy and just management And, and there's a lot that goes into this people have asked me a whole bunch of things of how i break down soil samples and how i evaluate things Listen, keep it simple, but remember, it's a lot more complex than we make it at times. So, you know, be okay with not knowing everything and and be willing to learn and don't just focus on, you know, what you're hearing uh, in cyberspace, because there's a lot you can learn either through this podcast or or other people. Man, that book is awesome. Everyone go buy that book and, and, and promote Craig Harper. The guy's smart. He knows what he's doing. I've met him uh, a couple times at different events. Um, and, and I think he has a, a lot of information to share and it's really all in that book and, and that'll get you in a, in a good place. And, and you can have some reference material that, that he's had 20, 30 years to, to kind of, uh, you know, compile. So I appreciate Mitch, you being on, uh, let's, uh, let's do this again. We'll, we'll try to pick a different topic and, uh, I'm looking forward to listening to more of your
2: podcast. Likewise, and I'm going to uh, pull your arm and say the next time you're coming on my show. Okay, sounds good, man. All right, talk to you soon. Thank you, John. Take care.
0: All right, see ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.